Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Dog Backwards, the podcast. Do you know that I had to do that take like four or five times because I kept saying plog backwards? I don't know why my tongue doesn't work today. Now, I hope that you are a subscriber to our YouTube channel. If you listen to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play or whatever it is, uh, you need to be on the YouTube channel because I upload actually a lot more on YouTube than I do on the actual iTunes podcast. We're doing less interviews and more kind of short dog bites, you might say. Uh, is that going to catch on? I don't think so. Um, and I'm on TikTok where I'm uploading um, kind of some more shorts. I'm trying to do that on YouTube too. I'm really trying to crank this stuff out. It takes a lot of time. So if you like this kind of content, please like, subscribe, share, all that stuff. Hit the notification bell. It really helps me out. What are we going to talk about today? Uh, how easy is salvation? I think that's the right way to phrase that. I don't want to get in trouble, but um, <clears throat> it's pretty easy to get saved, right? Even in the Bible, it's like confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. That's like a really broad entry, even though the Bible calls it the narrow path. So the reason I want to talk about this subject, and we're actually going to look at the Old Testament uh, to kind of understand salvation a little bit better uh, is because I do so much that is against the prosperity gospel or against Mormonism or against Catholicism. And so sometimes people think because I speak out against false teachers that I'm really judgmental and I have this really narrow, like you're only a Christian if you believe exactly the way that I believe. Now, there are Christians that believe differently than me. And I think there are Christians within Catholicism I think there are quite possibly Christians within Mormonism. I think there are Christians in all sorts of other denominations. I think that the entry is really wide. And when I speak out against these things, I want to be clear that I am speaking against those who teach it, the leaders, people like Joseph Smith, who were not only pedophiles, they were con men. And they create these religions that are based upon work-based salvation. And so anybody who tells another person that you can only be saved if you do A, B, and C, and then they're either impossible or near impossible to achieve, right? Mormonism is actually like encourages that you could stop sinning, but if you make a mistake, all your past sins are piled back upon you. And so those who actually know Mormonism know how demonic and ugly it actually is. But let's be honest, most people don't know Mormonism that are Mormons. In the same way, most of you who go to a Christian church don't know a lot of theology. And so it's, it's not against those who are just like, you, you barely have time to go to church, right? You wake up in the morning, you get the kids ready, you worked your job. All you know is you read your Bible, you love Jesus, you're trying your best. You don't know all the ins and outs about Mormonism. You don't know that Joseph Smith said that there were Quakers who lived on the moon. You don't know that he said that polygamy was an everlasting doctrine required for exaltation. So if you wanted to achieve ultimate salvation in Mormonism, you had to have more than one wife. You don't know that stuff. And so if you don't know that stuff and all you know is Jesus and you love Jesus and you're trying to serve Jesus, do I think that just because you use the name Jesus, it's a different Jesus? Man, it's, I try to be as generous as possible. I met a young man the other day who was a Mormon missionary. He came to my house and we had these conversations and he was, a, uh, he was a, almost about to commit suicide. His life was awful. 
And he said, and then he read the Bible that a Mormon gave him. And so he was assuming Mormonism was the one true religion the way it says it is. By the way, this might be a rabbit trail. Let me chase it for just a second. Anytime I'm speaking out against Mormonism, it is not because I'm judgmental against Mormonism. It's because I am responding to the accusations that Mormonism makes at its core. So Mormonism at its core, Joseph Smith started religion because he says all their teachers are corrupt and all their creeds are an abomination. So he looked at traditional classical Christianity and says that we are the church of the devil. That was Joseph Smith's original perspective. And it was for most of Mormon history. I don't know if you know this, but Mormonism changes with the times. So it it was uh, blacks could not have the priesthood. It was highly racist. Then all of a sudden, the civil rights movements come like, you know what? Maybe we should be nicer to black people. So Mormonism, yes, looks very much Christian today. That's because it's kind of like a chameleon religion. And my thing is, is I want people to know that. I want to know my faith. I want to know my faith. And I want Mormons to know their faith. I want Roman Catholics to know their faith. I want Christians to know everything good and bad about the history of the church so that they can make an informed decision. So are there Mormons who are Christian? I think so. I think so. And I I think it's because they don't really know Mormonism. They read their Bible. They trust in the God of the Bible. Do they read the Book of Mormon and, and think that it's God's word? Yeah. You can believe heretical things and not be a heretic. I know that's like, like, wait, if I believe heretical things, look, there are things that I used to think that I now think are wrong. And we're in this process of growth and growing. And just because you know something that you believe something to be true that is not true, doesn't automatically mean you lose your salvation. And I'll explain that a little bit more here. But as I was talking to this Mormon uh, who had was professing Jesus Christ. And when I asked him, I said, well, do you believe that there's only one God? He's like, yeah, I believe there's only one God. And I had to teach him his own religion. I was like, well, you know, Mormonism said that God was once a man who lived near a star, a planet called Kolob, and you'll be a God someday. And he's like, I don't know anything about that. I don't believe that. I'm like, so, so he's raised, he's like, he's going to a Mormon church, but he's not very Mormon. And I just, I could assuredly say, hey, look, if you really are a Christian, God's going to lead you out of that. Right, or he's going to protect you and blind your eyes to that, and I believe that. So, what do you need in order to actually be saved? What does how broad is salvation? How little do you have to know in order to be saved? And I think that's a good question to ask because, yes, I speak out against prosperity gospel teachers. I think the teachers are going to burn. I think they're they're damned for hell. Right? I think people like Benny Hinn who lie consciously, like he knows, uh, Todd White knows that he is doing fake miracles for money in the name of God. People who know that, ooh, buddy, wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Like, I pray you repent, I pray you turn, but man, I'm worried about you. But the people who go to their churches, a lot of them probably just ignorant. And I mean, we're all ignorant. We all got blinders on to something. And so I want to protect them from their false teachers. That's why we speak out against false teachers. A, the Bible commands us to do that too. So how wide can the gate be and somebody actually be saved? How little do they have to know? I know uh, most of you don't think about this, but 
Second Kings chapter five is a great place to get some of that information. I know when I say salvation, you you think like Romans or uh, Colossians or Hebrews or John three sixteen. Nobody thinks Second Kings, but there's a story in Second Kings that we gloss over, but it's beautiful. All right, it's about this guy Naaman. He's a commander of the army of the king of Syria, and it says that he is a mighty man of valor, but he's also a leper. So he's got money, he's got power, and his skin's falling off. Right, so he's he's a leper, um, and this little girl. From the land of Israel, she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So this little girl says, hey, uh, in Israel, there's a prophet and he can fix it. So he's like, okay, we'll find out. Um, We'll skip to verse eight. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, so um, Naaman sent a letter to the king of Israel. The king of Israel freaks out. He's like, how can I heal this guy? So he tears his clothes. Elisha hears about it. He says, hey, don't worry. I can fix this. I'll solve your problem. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored and you shall be clean. Forget this. Naaman was angry and went away. So he rode all this way. He shows up at Elisha's house, knocks on the door. Elisha is too busy to get off the couch and go greet him. He sends a servant. He's like, uh, is this that king of Syria guy? Uh, uh, oh, Naaman? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Go tell him to take a bath. Just dip seven times. He'll be fine. I said, he doesn't even go face to face. Now, this is a man of great honor, dignity, uh, respect, and valor. The least he would expect would be for a prophet to come and greet him at the door. He doesn't even get that. Uh, But Naaman was angry and went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Right? He wants what modern day prosperity gospel teachers do. He wants him to come over and make a big scene. Lord, who is in heavens? <laughs> You're healed. It's a miracle. That's that's what he's wanting. Elisha doesn't do that because that's not necessary. You ever see them on stage at these prosperity preachers? They, man, they are doing everything they can. Jumping around, singing, dancing to try to... They, they do like... Uh, Raiden from Mortal Kombat's like electrical throw, like trying to get some reaction out of these people, pushing them on the head. Do they fall down? That's that's like that's showmanship. It's not necessary for healing. Uh, <clears throat> are not Abana and Paphar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But a servant came near and said to him. My father, it is great. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Now, he receives his miracle, even though he doesn't really have faith. Hey, he's like, I, I don't want to do this. This is a waste of time. Why even go to these waters? I can't be bothered. So he's kind of like this reluctant 
sometimes people say, oh, you'll be healed if you have enough faith. Where's Naaman's faith? Naaman doesn't have any faith. Naaman is just like, listen, he's just frustratedly listening to a sermon. Like, fine, I'll go do it. I'll do it. I'll dip seven times. And then verse 15. Then he returned to the man of God and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now as a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before him, whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. The opposite of a prosperity preacher. He receives healing. The guy's like, Let me give you money. And Elisha says, I don't need your money. He says, I will not take it. I like that. I like that a lot. Then Naaman said, verse 17, if not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offerings or sacrifices to any God but the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace, go in shalom. So a couple of things. Naaman asks for two loads of dirt. Why does he want, why does he need some dirt? Because he wants the God of that land. Have you ever read Deuteronomy 32? It's an interesting chapter. It says that God divided the, the nations among the numbers of the sons of God, but Israel is his portion. So it, when, when God separated languages, it was not just random willy-nilly. He actually separated them according to the number of the sons of God. What are the sons of God? Some of your Bible commentaries might say that these are the judges of Israel, but that's not right because this is written before the judges of Israel. The sons of God, we read later on in the same Psalms and later in Deuteronomy, that they're in the clouds. So God turns over the nations to these other supernatural beings. And Psalms 82 is a Psalms about them not ruling justly and they will die like men, right? So they're these supernatural beings ruling over other nations and they demand sacrifice and worship. And so uh, as they are divided by land, he says, I need some of this land. So I can take it back and I can offer my sacrifices on what he would consider holy ground. It's the land from Israel, right? When I went uh, and toured Israel, I brought home a little keychain that had sand uh, from Israel. I don't, I don't like kneel and pray on that because it's just sand. But that's why he wants the dirt. And he has this problem. He says, look, from this day on, I'm going to have my allegiance to the one true God, but I need, I need permission. I need to know if it's okay with this God who just healed me of leprosy to do my day job. And what is his day job? Uh, yes, he's a commander of the army, but because he's so trusted, it says that um, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, so he has to go to another God with his king. And his king's going to, he's old and he can't get up and down very easily. So Naaman has to get down with him and kneel with him in the temple of a false god while somebody offers sacrifices to that god. So every day or however often they do it, he's going to go, that would be like, hey, once a week I have to go to the church of Satan. <laughs> and I have to kneel in the church of Satan because my grandma goes there and I need to help her. 
She can't get up and down on her own. Can I be a Christian and attend the Church of Satan weekly? That's that's the kind of question that he's asking. And he will most likely, because he traveled so far away, he's in Syria, he's not going to ever learn anything else about this God. He's not going to take a copy of the Torah with him. He's not going to learn all the festivals and feasts. He's not going to do anything. When he makes sacrifices, as every nation did make sacrifices to their God, he's going to say, hey, I'm offering this up to the God of Israel, the one true God, the only one I know that can actually do anything. He will learn, most likely, nothing else about God except that this being is the one that healed him. His theology will stop there. And he will spend the rest of his life going to the church of a false god. And he's worried about that because any other god would be like, no, you were, you're, you've instantly lost all good standing and favor. But the prophet, uh, he says to him, this is verse 19, 2 Kings 5, verse 19, go in shalom, go in peace. It's not just like, hey, yeah, it'll be fine. It's like you are totally fine. Let the wholeness and freeness of God envelop you. You're going to be just okay. So he had allegiance to the one true God. That's where his allegiance lied. But he knew nothing else. His theology was minuscule. And yet he was still saved. So I hope that answers the question, how, how broad is God's love and salvation? It's this broad. For somebody who knows nothing other than this is the God that is true. And for the rest of my life, in whatever way possible, I'm making sacrifices to him. Even if he doesn't do any of the old covenant stuff, there's a lot of laws in the Old Testament. And he's not going to follow any of them. The prophet says you can go in peace. God's like, you're okay. God's okay with you. Are, are, are there Roman Catholics who love Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. You can go in peace. Would I hope that their eyes would be opened? That uh, you, don't, you don't need Mary for anything? I was in a conversation with a Catholic the other day. And uh, he said... Uh, <clears throat> Oh, how did he phrase this? It was something to do with like, hey, if you had a friend that you couldn't get a hold of, but you could get a hold of, no, that's not how he said it. Um, something to do, he talked to Mary because you can, you can go to one person and uh, they might be really busy, but if you got the mom's attention and the mom went for you, like they would have a lot of sway and influence. So we pray to Mary for extra influence to Jesus. And he kind of used that illustration. I was like, well, but in the illustration, if we were to be accurate, you would go to a graveyard because Mary's dead. I mean, Mary can't do anything. She can't go and, and, and like intercede on your behalf. That's the whole point of Jesus. He's our intercession between us and God, right? And so these extra things, sometimes they can be anti-Christ where they go so far that they've completely removed themselves from the gospel. They don't even believe the gospel. And I think the higher ups in Roman Catholicism, I think to say nope to the Pope, man, uh, I, I don't think these people are good people. I think the Pope is no different than a prosperity gospel preacher who's just been at it for a really, really long time, right? He just has all the air of tradition upon him. 
but he's no more, I don't know, they're all, I would say, charlatans. Maybe that's a harsh word for you, but read the history of some of the popes. Some of those dudes are some bad dudes. And to go on and just pretend like none of it happened so you can retain power, uh, yeah, that's a charlatan, right? That's a con man. And so um, I do think there are millions of Christians that are Catholic. But I think the deeper you go into Roman Catholicism, if the Holy Spirit lives and resides within you, your allegiance is going to be tested. And those who are saved are those who have an allegiance to the one true God. That makes sense? Last thing I would say is you most definitely cannot be saved by good works. He wants to do a good work right after he gets healed because that is how most of us operate. Like if I do good things, God loves me. You say, well, there's a lot of good people. Surely these good people will be saved. Maybe God is so broad in his generosity that even if they don't believe in Jesus, that uh, maybe they believe in uh, the spaghetti monster. I don't know. Maybe they believe in Gishnu. They're still nice people, and God loves good people, and so he's going to heal the nice and good people, and they will be saved, right? There's a serious problem with that. How, do, how are you going to define good? How are you going to define good? Because you say, well, I'm sure good people will go to heaven because the Bible's about being a good person. That's not what the Bible's about. It's about your allegiance to the one true God, and a reflection of that makes you a better person. Like the, the uh, result of doing that will make you a better person because you're going to grow to conform to the image of Jesus. But to be a good person, even though I do a lot of nice things for people and I feel like I have good morality, in a small scale, I'm a good person. In a, in a small scale. But I can't just limit my scope of how I view myself to such a way that it makes me a good person, right? Like even drug addicts can create this circle around them. Uh, people who lie, cheat, and steal they can create a circle around them where they are the good person within that circle. And they go, well, I don't do what old Timmy does over here. And sometimes I share my drugs and I gave a needle to, you know, Susie. The other. So they have this circle that they created. And within that circle, they're the good person. And we do that even in circles of other good people. But the circle is not as broad, it's not as narrow as I think it is. It, if I really want to define, am I a good person? I have to think universally. Universally, the world is full of people who are starving to death. To death. Like there are little kids who die from lack of drinking water. And I spent $6 on a coffee the other day. And I didn't think about them at all. <laughs> just being, just being real. Like I'm just being serious. Like there are people died, and I could donate money. I could take all of the money that I have. You know, I collect comic books. I don't know if you know. You know, I collect comic books. Uh, you, I don't know if you can see this behind me. Can I show you something? So this is the original artwork to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number 13 drawn by Frank Fosco, right? The IDW series. Um, 
This is what he drew that becomes the cover, and they put the title on there. There's only one of these. This is the only one in the world. If you want this, you have to buy the comic book, but you don't get this. You just get the comic book. So this, it's not cheap, right? So here's the question. Could I sell that and feed starving people in a different country? Yes. Yes, I could. You could always do more than you are doing. You could always give more than you are giving. This is why Jesus says, be perfect as I am perfect. Thing is, is you can't be perfect. This is why you need grace. This is why works cannot save you. Because as good as I am, if I think on a global scale, then I would need to sell everything I have, live a life of poverty because I am privileged, and give 90% of my paycheck to those around the world so that their lives could be better. Wouldn't that be the good and moral thing to do? There are several types of sins. Sins of omission and sins of commission. It's a sin of doing what you know you shouldn't do and a sin of not doing the good you ought to do. There are good things you ought to do and you're not doing them. So that makes you not a good person in the universal scale. Does that make sense? Do you agree or disagree with that? Where do you think you can draw the line when it comes to salvation? Do you have friends that are Jehovah's Witness, Catholic or Mormon, that you believe are truly Christian? Or do you think that they need to go to uh, a Southern Baptist church and um, in order to be actually saved, right? Do you think there's a Baptist-only line or a, a Methodist-only line in heaven? How do you draw that line? Where is it? Uh, comment below. Appreciate you guys. Have a great day.